Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Richard Kallenberg, a non-resident scholar at Georgetown University's McCourt School of Public Policy and a leading voice on economic and educational opportunity, including the need to better integrate people of different backgrounds and experiences in schools and neighborhoods. His latest book, Excluded, How Snob Zoning, NIMBYism, and Class Bias Build the Walls We Don't See, extends his class-based analysis to the subject of housing. I'm grateful to speak with him about the book, including the costs and consequences of these exclusionary housing policies, which counterintuitively, he argues, are often found in liberal cities that have progressive views about equality. Richard, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Great. Well, well, thanks so much for having me, Sean. I was really excited to read the book and speak with you because your analysis has a lot of relevance for Canada, which is presently in the midst of a housing affordability crisis. Yet, the political and policy discussion has focused primarily on the intergenerational dynamics at play, but not so much the ways in which it has powerful class-based consequences. Why do you think that is? What explains in your mind the neglect of class considerations when we think and talk about housing? Well, I think across North America, there is a hesitancy to, to talk about class. Uh, we, we often frame issues in terms of race, uh, in terms of gender, or in terms, as you're suggesting, age cohorts. But people aren't comfortable with, with the notion of class. Uh, we're, you know, we were meant to distance ourselves from our parents in Great Britain. And so when you, when you go to England, you can talk about class and everyone understands exactly what you're saying immediately. I think in, in, uh, at least in the United States, there's, there's less of that uh, desire to acknowledge class questions. And so even politicians on the left will talk about middle income families or working families rather than working class families. So it's part of our part of our tradition. But when you when you dig down a little bit deeper and talk to people, they fully understand the class dynamics and that are that are going on in, in housing and in all sorts of sorts of arenas. Today in the city of Toronto, Canada's most dynamic job creating city, average monthly rent is more than $3,000 per month. And a household must be in the top 90 percentile of earners to be able to afford a condo. It's created a perverse dynamic in which the working class people who fill critical jobs in the city, including servers and waitresses, childcare workers, garbage collectors, etc., can't afford to live there. They have to commute long drives to serve those who can. Talk about that dynamic and its inherent political and social consequences, including for the perpetuation of inequality. 
Yeah. Well, well, you you put your finger on a really important problem. You know, w- workforce housing is is scarce uh, where it needs to be, and that has a couple of important implications. One is, uh, at least within the United States, people are not moving to opportunity the way they used to. They're moving to affordability, and so it used to be that you know during the 20th century, white Okies from Oklahoma would move to California during the Great Depression. Black people had the Great Migration to to the North, in part to get away from racial oppression in Jim Crow South, but also because there were better job opportunities. And now that happens less often. And as you're suggesting, when you need to live in a metropolitan area, working class people are pushed to the periphery. And that means long commutes, which is uh, bad for those individuals. You know, the, the rate of, of divorce, the rate of, you know, psychological depression, the uh, heart attacks, all sorts of things are associated with those miserable commutes. And to the extent that they're in automobiles, this is bad for everyone. It's bad for the planet. And in, in, in many Parts of the country, uh, both countries, were seeing shortages of workers, and that's that's related to this phenomenon. And it's not just working class people. It's you know, and, and there are teachers in California who can't afford to live in the the communities where they're teaching. And there was one California community where the superintendent sent out an advertisement uh, to the parents and said, "Please, you know, rent a room to a teacher." Uh, because uh, the, we can't recruit people, and so so it's a it's a problem, particularly for for workers, but it's a problem for everyone. I would just say in parentheses, Richard, two phrases that have come to have resonance in the housing policy debate in Canada are "drive until you qualify," which hmm. is sort of self-explanatory, and the second is musical chairs, where you have middle-class Torontonians moving into the periphery in search of housing affordability and then pushing working-class citizens from those peripheral towns further out into the periphery because they're, they're outbid on, on housing. So as you say, it has implications across the class spectrum and increasingly across regions in and around our most dynamic cities. It leads to the obvious question, what's going on? What has produced these dynamics in Canadian cities as well as American ones? What's the relative role of, say, market forces and government policy? Well, this is, as as the New York Times said, this is one of the perhaps rare areas where government really is the problem, to use Ronald Reagan's famous phrase. <laughs> you, you know, the, this is an area where local governments consciously reduce the supply of housing by passing exclusionary zoning laws. So these are the laws that your your listeners are probably familiar with, you know, those that say you're welcome to this community so long as you can afford a detached single family home. And sometimes we're going to require it to have, you know, a minimum lot size. And if there is multifamily housing, we, we may require that there be this expensive brick siding rather than something that would be more affordable. And so it's a conscious effort to exclude those of of more modest means who are seen by some as, quote unquote, undesirable neighbors. 
And to a lesser extent, I don't know that this is as conscious, but the effect certainly is to limit the supply of housing. And when you have, uh, you know, artificial constraint of supply, you will you will drive up prices. I mean, we saw that during the during COVID, you know, there was a shortage of because of supply chain problems, a shortage of of cars, and so the price of used cars just went up uh, yes. dramatically. And we, in essence, have a perpetual supply chain issue of sorts, an artificial constraint on supply when local governments say that builders cannot build housing where people want it. As you say, the the book criticizes various types of zoning policies, such as restrictions on multifamily residents that act as a form, uh, in your words, of economic discrimination against working class citizens. You even call some of these policies, as, as you set out in the book subtitle, quote, snob zoning. And I, I want to take up a, a point you made in your last answer. How conscious do you think they are? Are they, generally speaking, intentionally designed to exclude working class people, including racial minorities? Or is this an unintended consequence of other motivations like aesthetic preferences or maximizing property values or whatever? Uh, put differently, Richard, do snobs know they're snobs? <laughs> Well, not all of them. Not all of them. I, 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 I don't want to say that anyone who lives in an excuse, exclusive community that has exclusionary zoning is is a bad person. I certainly don't think that to be true. I have lots of lots of friends who live in exclusive communities, and they're they're usually choosing a community based on the strong local public schools, and not, you know, no one can can fault them for that. Uh, but where I do have some trouble is with with folks who ardently defend existing exclusionary policies when the evidence is clear that it does such harm enormous harm to to others and so when you get into the the debates about changing exclusionary zoning so for example moving from single family exclusive zoning to to allowing duplexes and triplexes it's fascinating to see how people respond, because if it were if it were merely aesthetics, you wouldn't see the arguments come up as they do. That they're looking, the people are looking to to be separate and apart from undesirable neighbors. And I've had you know, I've written a lot about this topic in recent years, and I had one New York Times op-ed and saying we should open up housing laws and. And people would write the the most interesting responses about you know you don't realize what it's like to live around poor people, you know they're they're louder. They're uh, I had one guy who said the dogs bark their dogs bark louder than than other dogs. So part of this is is clearly very very conscious. And Rehan Salam in the Atlantic pointed to some polling in California, which suggested people don't want to relax zoning restrictions in part because they're worried that undesirable neighbors will bring crime, they will bring bad behaviors. And so this is, to my mind, pretty clearly an example of of class discrimination, which has a huge racial component to it as well. Not, not, I'm not saying the people who are exclusionary zoning are racist. What I'm saying is the class discrimination has a racial impact. Yeah, let me let me take up that precise point. The book documents how the consequences of restrictive or exclusionary zoning disproportionately affects certain groups more than others, including racial minorities. 
Richard, talk about the distributional consequences of these policies. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, to begin with, there you, you know there was explicit racial zoning, and so throughout much of the uh, American South, in particular, there were laws that forbade black people from moving into uh, white neighborhoods. Uh, that was struck down in 1917. But then the the workaround was was uh, class zoning, you know, the the requirements of minimum lot sizes and and the bans on multifamily housing, which had the effect of of excluding racial minorities. Uh, today, though, I think we've we have morphed to to more of a a system of class discrimination that isn't necessarily designed to exclude by race, but but clearly has that effect. So we see in places like Prince George's County, Maryland, outside of Washington D.C., that wealthy black people will exclude poorer black people, and there are places in Wisconsin and other other states where poor uh, wealthy whites exclude poor whites. So it's not strictly racial in character, but because of a history of segregation and you know enslavement and and redlining. Black people have fewer resources on average than than white people. So it's a very predictable result of class discrimination that we see racial discrimination come out of it. Let me just pick up on those observations, Richard, because you're someone who has spent a lifetime thinking and writing about the sources and causes of inequality in American life and and what can be done to address them. And in an accompanying op-ed associated with the book, in in July, you wrote, quote, housing segregation by race and class is a fountainhead of inequality in America. Why don't you elaborate on that idea? Uh, Have you come to the view through your research and scholarship that addressing these housing issues may be the most important thing that policymakers can do to make progress on an anti-inequality agenda? Absolutely. So there's, there's a mountain of research from Raj Chetty at Harvard and others that where you live determines how well you're going to do in the United States, at least. And and we see that time and time again. There's recent research that looks at friendships and the, the role that friendships play in determining how one does economically. And, and social mobility is determined precisely by location. They can, they can map it to the census tract. And so when policies in essence, segregate people and, and keep people out of certain high opportunity communities. You're condemning those families and their and the kids to an unequal playing field. And and I I came at the issue of housing through education. I've spent you know 25, 30 years writing about educational opportunity. And one of the key social science findings is that spending matters in education, but integration matters more. That is to say that low-income students, when given the opportunity to attend an economically mixed school, will on average be as much as two years academically ahead of low-income students who are are stuck in high-poverty environments where everyone around them is poor. And so you know, reducing the discriminatory zoning policies is is key to making sure that there's equal educational opportunity in both our countries. What explains in your mind, Richard, the disconnect between 
a progressive politics which puts equality at the center of its understanding of the economy and society and the perpetuation of these types of policies in liberal cities, what accounts for the cognitive dissonance? Yeah, this was one of the things that I found most disturbing in the research. Uh, you know, I'm a I'm a liberal Democrat and take pride in that. I think a lot of liberal Democrats care about inequality. And yet the very worst forms of exclusionary zoning are found in the most aggressive areas of the country. The people who are against a building a wall to Mexico are nevertheless at least willing to go along with terribly exclusionary zoning laws. And I think there's a benign explanation and then a not so benign explanation. So one of the benign explanations is that liberals care a lot about democracy, small d democracy, and uh, want people to have a say in how how our affairs are are run. And that's a that's a positive impulse. Uh, but we've seen that both the environmental concern and the democracy concern have been weaponized by not in my backyard forces to 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 exclude today. And so so that's unfortunate. Uh, the less benign explanation for why you see the worst forms of exclusionary zoning in liberal areas goes to something that Fareed Zakaria mentioned. He observed that if the cardinal sin of the right is racism, the cardinal sin of the left is elitism. And there's some social science research to back this up. There was experimental research that looked at people who had higher levels of education and their attitudes. And it turns out that as one would hope and expect, more education mean, meant less racial prejudice. Uh, so that's, a po that's the positive side of things. Unfortunately, it also turned out that more educated people had much more negative views of those with less education. You know, kind of something that that may have been captured by Hillary Clinton's famous statement about deplorables. So there is an elitism that goes along with liberalism today. It's an unfortunate, not necessary attachment, but an unfortunate one. Uh, and that may help explain why exclusionary zoning persists in these very, very liberal areas. Sign up for The Hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Each Saturday morning, we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary, along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab the Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership. Act now. Let me put an idea to you and, and get your reaction. Uh, I mentioned before we started recording that these issues have risen to the forefront of Canadian politics in recent months. And kind of counterintuitively, it's the leader of the federal conservative party, Pierre Polyev, who up until now has kind of stalled the march on these issues. Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister Trudeau and his government are increasingly matching the conservatives, but they start a bit behind the conservatives in identifying the challenge and putting forward solutions. And I've heard the argument that 
conservatives might counterintuitively be better placed to address these issues because they start with relatively low levels of support in major cities. In other words, the political costs associated with pushing for reform to zoning may be lower than for progressive politicians who start with relatively high levels of public support and in turn may face greater political costs for championing some of the reforms that you and others have put forward. What do you think of that line of thinking? Hmm. Well, that, that's a fascinating uh, analysis, and there, there may be something to that. But I think there are a couple of, of larger points I'd like to make. One is that there are liberal reasons and there are conservative reasons to want to reform zoning. So, for example, in the, you know, the very conservative governor, Republican governor of Montana, uh, passed and signed a, you know, major piece of, of legislation to reduce exclusionary zoning because he sees it as kind of unleashing the free market. You know, this is basically deregulation, uh, getting government out of the way. And that's appealing to a lot of uh, uh, conservatives. And it's uh, and there's a property rights angle to it as well. You know, I should be able to do what I want with my own property. If I want to subdivide it and have two houses here, why is the government telling me I can't? I think at the same time, we've seen most of the reform in the United States in progressive areas, in part because that's where the biggest problem is, but in part because, you know, liberals care about about reducing exclusion, about civil rights, about the environment, about uh, low-income people and homelessness uh, that results from unaffordable housing prices. So this is one of those rare cases where uh, liberals and conservatives can come together uh, from very different vantage points. You know, usually when there's a, there's a compromise, it means that each side is given up 50%. This is not one of those cases. This is a case where both sides can come to the same policy conclusion, which is that we ought to allow more housing by changing our zoning laws uh, from very, very different, different vantage points. The final thing I'll say is that even though you, I, you know, you raise this really interesting points about point that progressives have more to lose because their constituents, many of their constituents are for exclusionary zoning. But in in the states of California and Oregon, it was a different coalition that brought mm -hmm. about change. It was basically a rural urban coalition against, in essence, the wealthy suburbs. And so, reform would not have passed in in either state if there hadn't been some Republican support because Democrats were divided. Basically, Democrats in low income and working class areas wanted reform and the wealthy areas did not. And there were enough Republicans from rural areas that also felt excluded and looked down upon that came around to, to supporting reform. One challenge with fixing the problem as you identified in the book is that we're forced to work with the built environment as it's evolved over decades. Uh, the city of Toronto is a good example. The downtown core is hyper-dense with a lot of high-rise buildings, yet much of the rest of the city is low density with single-family or semi-detached homes. How do you overcome the limits of, of the pre-existing built environment beyond simply on the margins? Well, we've seen uh, you know, an expansion in, in a number of communities of, of missing middle, housing that can have a big impact on the overall number of, of uh, housing units available and therefore the, the level of affordability. So, for example, in Los Angeles, 
they have legalized accessory dwelling units, you know, the backyard or, or garage apartments, and have seen an explosion in the number of people who are able to live in that, that type of, of housing. Now, not everyone makes that change, but thousands have. And so that's without tearing down anything, people have been able to expand the, the supply of housing. The other alternative is in, particularly in highly desirable areas, it is affordable for, or it's profitable, I should say, for a builder to take a an existing single family home and build a duplex or a triplex or a quad. And if you, you know, if you do that many times over, you can have a big impact. Uh, what typically happens today is that a smaller single family home is replaced by a McMansion. And so it's not as if development has and redevelopment has stopped in these communities. It's that it's the wrong kind of uh, development. And it's possible you could just build a triplex in where, where it had been uh, a small single family home. And rather than making it a McMansion, let three families live in that, in that area. It brings us now to the book's recommendations. Richard, what do you think is needed to overcome the panoply of rules and regulations that have contributed to the unequal status quo? And talk in particular about your idea of an economic fair housing act and how it might work. Yes. Well, I think, you know, uh, the states and localities have paved the way to show that it's very popular to legalize missing middle housing. And so I think that's an important first step. But in addition, I'd like to see something more dramatic, what I'm, what I'm calling an Economic Fair Housing Act, which would allow people who are harmed by government, local government laws that exclude them to sue in federal court, and the burden would shift to the municipality to justify why they have banned multifamily housing in large swaths of the community, you know, why they're requiring a uh, half acre lot in certain areas. And in many cases, this has been a technique that's been used in, in civil rights law. And when the burden shifts to the locality, they, they oftentimes will settle and come up with a, you know, a new alternative that opens up, opens up housing. But what I like about the concept of an Economic Fair Housing Act is not just how it would work on the ground, but that it moves the issue from or highlights for people that the existing policies are not just ill-advised, they're, they're wrong. You know, people now recognize that it's wrong to discriminate based on race. And people would be horrified if, if they were accused of discriminating based on race. And yet we have these pervasive policies that discriminate based on class. And the concept of the Economic Fair Housing Act is meant to elevate the, the issue of class discrimination to something comparable to that of racial discrimination. I still think racial discrimination is worse. But the basic concept that a zoning law should be put in place to keep other people out of a community because there's something about those fellow citizens that is so beneath those living in the wealthy communities that they, you know, these others ought to be quarantined is, is just deeply offensive. And, and I think the Economic Fair Housing Act is meant to, to underline that point. You mentioned Raihan Salam the president of the Manhattan Institute earlier. I should just say in 
parentheses that Raihan is a, a past guest of Hub Dialogues and a friend of mine. He wrote something, a review of the book in July, in which, well, he broadly agreed with your analysis. He warned as a prudential matter that your recommendations might create a, a backlash that strengthens the forces of nimbyism, including from those who take exception to the idea that they are snobs. If durable progress requires coalition building, what in your mind, Richard, is the best means in, in favor of creating the political conditions for zoning reform? Well, uh, and I should say, I'm not a friend of Raihan Salam's, but I respect him. I think he's a smart individual who's outlined some provocative ideas. So so I, I read with what he says with interest and respect. Uh, having said that, I was really astonished to see the argument that calling out class discrimination was somehow going to hurt the sensibilities of individuals and and therefore undercut the you know a, a pot potential political coalition. And my point is not that people living in exclusive communities are like Bull Connor, who are, uh, you know, really uh, terrible people. Uh, it's rather to try to educate people about the harms that are associated with the policies that they probably just took for granted and didn't think much about. And my my evidence here that the moral arguments can make a difference go to places like like Minneapolis, Arlington, Virginia, and others where, you know, deeply liberal communities that had quite exclusionary policies changed those policies. And they appealed to racial justice, they appealed to economic justice, they appealed to environmental concerns. And so, so my point is not to demonize anyone, it's rather to open people's eyes to the fact that these are invisible walls that have been built around around privileged communities that need to need to come down. The other my other quarrel with Rehan Salam's argument was he assumed that the only possible way to pass zoning reform, which is something by the way he supports, is to appeal to the vast majority of people in exclusionary communities. And I think we've seen in in California, Oregon, and elsewhere, that you can build a different kind of bipartisan coalition that doesn't rely on majorities from exclusive communities. That basically, you know, yes, they're very deeply concerned in these exclusive communities about their property values. But one person's, you know, property value concerns is another person's affordab housing affordability crisis. And so uh, the numbers are there. Uh, th there are just many more people who are concerned about the current system than want to defend it today. The Hub recently published an article in which the, the author described, quote, the housing theory of everything, which is to say housing affordability challenges have come to influence economic growth, productivity, equality, politics, and so on. Paint a picture of the broad-based effects of a new political and policy consensus in favor of a more inclusive housing policy. You know, I'm I'm hoping people can imagine a world in which you know individuals could build or, or developers could build housing where people want it, and as a result, we had reduced greenhouse gases because people weren't on these terrible long commutes, where. There was greater educational opportunity 
for students because we weren't segregating low-income families as dramatically as we are today through residential zoning. Uh, a place where you know families didn't have to uh, worry about buying medicine or making rent because there was abundant supply of housing. And, and so there wasn't this intense need to devote so many of the resources to, to housing where people could move to the parts of the country where they wanted to live because they're the best jobs and not have to worry about the fact that housing is insanely expensive. And finally, I'm imagining, you know, a place where our democracy was stronger and less polarized because uh, people of different backgrounds, different races, different economic groups had a chance to get to know each other as neighbors and talk about sports and talk about their kids and and not just see the uh, see one another as as enemies or opponents. And so I think that while I don't want to over overstate this, I do believe that the exclusionary zoning laws we have in this country that are doing so much harm are really central to so many of the problems that we're, we're trying to address. And it's, 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 it's time really to begin tearing down those walls. Final question. Are you optimistic, Richard, that your ideas and arguments are finding traction? Well, I'm optimistic that uh, whether it's my, you know, my personal arguments or, or whether it's the, the general uh, discussion in, in America and, and in Canada, that uh, I, I am optimistic that we're seeing change. So when I started researching Excluded about seven years ago, there were not a lot of examples of success that I could point to. And then 2018, Minneapolis opened the floodgates and said, we're going to get rid of exclusionary single family zoning. We're going to legalize duplexes and triplexes everywhere in the community. And then, and then a number of states made reform. Now we're seeing it in blue states in America and red states. And I know that there's been progress in Canada as well. And so I'm, I am optimistic that, that the, the forces in support of a deeply un, unfair system are eroding and that we're, we're seeing, seeing real dynamics of change in, in, in both countries. That's a good place to wrap up our conversation. The book is Excluded. As snob zoning, nimbyism, and class bias build the walls we don't see. Richard Kallenberg, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.